About 11 o'clock at night, I was quite jet lagged and I was in my flat, I was just getting ready for, for bed and, and I was standing there, I think I was in my underpants, brushing my teeth and there was a knock at the door. And I was, you know, I, again, I was a bit kind of jet lagged. I didn't think about looking through the, the hole in the, the door or anything. I opened it up and four policemen burst in with, you know, with guns, you know, kind of, and cocked and kind of like ready. And I was, I was standing there in my underpants, a toothbrush in my mouth, and I was, I had no idea what was going on. This is Home, stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barol. Imagine this. You spend a decade, roughly half your life to that point, and about an eighth of your probable lifespan, roaming the world in pursuit of an ancient faith. What happens to your idea of home? Does it get sharper or fuzzier? More or less an abstraction? Does it matter? So my name is Andy Puddicombe, and I'm the co-founder of Headspace. Headspace is a web and app-based meditation platform. Its basis is Andy's training in Buddhist practice, the training he received over a decade of travel and study. About halfway through that time, he was ordained as a monk in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He was well-versed and well-traveled. I think in terms of where I feel I've lived, I would say I lived in Australia. I definitely lived in Russia. Uh, obviously, I've been here in, in the U.S. and several stints in the U.S. This is my, my latest one. Um, I lived in France for a good time, in Spain for a little while. Um, and then obviously, yeah, uh, in, in Asia. So India, Nepal, Burma. Those are the really, I'd say, the countries that I, I feel like I've lived. He's lived in so many places around the world that he has trouble recalling them on demand. Sometimes he forgets a whole country. A big one, too. Not one of the small ones. Oh, yeah, I lived in Scotland as well. I spent a, a year living in a, a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Scotland, one of the, the first ones to appear in the, the West probably about 45, 50 years ago. After our meeting, in all honesty, I'm still having trouble keeping the itinerary straight. I email Andy to ask if he can set it down for me conclusively, once and for all. And he does. 1990. Ski season, working in Val d'Isère, France. Followed by a summer season, working in Ibiza, Spain. 1991 to 1993. Working in Florida, coaching sports to young children. 1993 to 1994. Sports science degree in the UK, although quitting after just one year to head to Asia. 1994. Leave UK for Asia monastic study. In order... India, Nepal, Thailand, Burma. 1996, leave to Australia to study with a Burmese teacher. 1997, travel to Burma. 1998, monastery in England in the Burmese Thai tradition. 1999, back to Asia, India specifically, to be ordained in the Tibetan tradition. 2000, Leave to train with teacher in Russia. Training between India and Russia for two years. 2002. Head to Scotland for one year for a cloistered retreat at Samuel Ling Monastery. 2003. Back to Russia and India for training and starting to teach. 2004. Return to the UK. 2013. Leave for the US. I did the math. 
That's 11 countries, eight of them during that decade of study. I try to imagine what that felt like, picking up, moving on, crossing borders and time zones, swapping one whole country, one national identity for another, on the average of once every 15 months, for 10 years. I was unsettled in my 20s too, but for me that meant bribing some friends with pizza and beer to help me move from one New York walk-up to another. Which was, I think it's fair to say, much more the norm for young adults starting their lives in Western countries. Andy's decade on the road was unusual in that context, but it sat nicely within one of the ancient precepts of Buddhism. If you look back at those very early texts, in fact, there's a lot of encouragement, although monasteries inevitably developed. It always kind of tends to happen. You know, large communities come together and they become these focal points. Early monastics were actually encouraged to move on. They were encouraged to uh, not stay. In, I, I don't remember the exact terminology or phrase that was used, but it was kind of not to lay their head in one place for more than a couple of days at a time. And there was that sense of kind of always moving. And I think home was more about a, perhaps a quality of mind rather than a, a physical place. Still, even if home is a state of mind or a quality of mind, as Andy puts it, we're humans. We geolocate. It's one of the things we do. And no matter how enlightened we may be, the urge to turn our faces toward home is deep and primitive and real. You can call that a spiritual thing, and Andy's story is certainly one grounded in a spiritual quest, but the story I want to tell about his story isn't spiritual. At least, I don't think it is. Maybe that's getting tangled up in semantics. Anyway, the story I want to tell is about purposefully unraveling and re-knitting the connections we have to the places we live, and then doing it again, and again, and again. So I ask Andy, in that decade of tramping the world, which places felt more like home and which less so, and why? So one, for example, would be would be Thailand. And Thailand, you know, I probably spent in total probably something like about a year there, you know, but never stayed, you know, it's never become home. I remember going there the first time thinking like, okay, I'm uh, with the intention of, of becoming a monk. I'd kind of skipped Burma and gone straight to Thailand and thinking I was going to become a monk there in a particular monastery and you know I met I met someone and then like a group of people and I don't know kind of they'd been to that monastery and they weren't that kind of keen on it and they decided that they were going to go and see this teacher in Australia and you know he was a Burmese teacher and I was kind of like, well, how much does it cost to go to Australia? And they were like, oh, I think you can get it for about like $300, you know. And I thought, well, I got nowhere else to go. Why not? You know, so I got on a plane with these guys and I ended up going to Australia and meeting a Burmese teacher and in turn then going back to Burma to live in the monastery there. And again, I, I was convinced when I, when I set out from London. I went to the Himalayas first, but I was pretty sure that I was going to end up living in Thailand. And it just never came to be. And my sister ended up moving there and she lived there for about five years. And, and still, kind of, I didn't end up living in Thailand. So it was one of these places that I kind of fell in love with, but it was, it was never home. So Thailand, not so much. Chance meetings, a changed mind, an instinct, an opportunity. All these things conspired to keep Andy from settling there long enough to make it home. What about places that did feel like home? One of them comes to his mind right away. 
it probably isn't one of the ones you think. I think the the thing that uh, the place that surprises most people is Russia. I think when they think of a, a Buddhist monk, like the the Asia cell, like that's quite easy. They're like, yeah, okay, I get it. You know, it's quite easy for. And they were like, what were you doing in Russia? Like, what's a Buddhist monk doing in Russia? And yet he came to feel very much at home there, and very quickly. Yeah, and I I have no <laughs> I have no rational way of explaining it, other than I think it was a, a really. Um, oh, profound sounds too heavy a word, but it was a really meaningful kind of part of my life. And I think something very significant kind of happened there. I was, I went there primarily because there was a, a teacher who I wanted to, to train with. And his time there didn't start auspiciously. He landed in Moscow. And um, my visa had been filled in incorrectly and it was one, it was one day out. And the guy pulled me aside and said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to fly back to London. And I was like, oh, you know, is there no way we can kind of sort this out? And he pulled me into a kind of a little booth. And, you know, a number of guys kind of came in and they were chatting in Russian. I had no idea what they were speaking about. I didn't speak Russian at the time. And um, eventually he said, OK, well, I think there's some arrangement we can come to. There's a, there's a special kind of fee for this, you know. And I said, OK, how much is it? And uh, he said, how much do you have on you? I said, well, I said, you know, not not so much. And he said, well, you know, take out your wallet. And I, I got about 300 bucks on me at the time. And uh, he said, oh, okay, so the, the fee is $300. And they just took out a biro, like a, a pen, and just put a line through the date and put the new date. It wasn't even like, like a, an official kind of stamp or anything. And they were like, on your way. And I went um, straight to the apartment. And this was the first night in Russia. And it was just after um, there was a, a series of um, bombings in Russia in the late 90s where entire apartment blocks in the center of, of Moscow had been kind of blown up. And um, the, at the time, the Russian government were, were blaming it on the Chechens. And there was a lot of, it was a kind of a state of heightened tension. And I'd gone into this flat and I didn't know this at the time, but apparently one of the, the babushkas, one of these old kind of Russian ladies who kind of are on the lookout um, downstairs had seen me and, and reported that a foreigner had come and because I was staying in not a foreign part of town, like it was, it was just where the local people lived. And, um, and it was about 11 o'clock at night. I was quite jet lagged and I was in my flat. I was just getting ready for, for bed. And the only thing I'd laid out was um, kind of my little kind of shrine that I carried with me wherever I went. It was kind of where I did my meditation and stuff. I'm going to interrupt Andy's story here because he's arrived at something that I think may be significant. It goes to the idea of ritual, of grounding ourselves in new places through a familiar practice. In my 20s, when I moved a lot, at least I thought I did before I met Andy, in my own 20s, my moving in ritual was to unpack and hook up my stereo first, before anything else. Then I'd slit the tape on the big square packing boxes that held my records, and I'd pick one to be the first one I played in my new home. Andy's ritual was to set up a place to meditate. The first thing I'd do whenever I arrived somewhere new was identify where I was going to sit. For me, sitting, practicing, meditating, whatever you want to call it, that was such an important aspect of life it kind of it was life it was reflect it wasn't separate from life i would yeah kind of move if i think of moscow as an example you know i, I remember going into that room and, and actually it was so obvious in that particular space there was a there was an old bit of furniture and it was almost like an old dresser but a dresser without any legs and so I just sat on the floor 
And as I got my, I used to sort of carry just a few very small bits with me. There were a couple of um, little cloth pieces that I'd gotten from the Tibetan monastery, which I used to just lay out a couple of sort of my books and a few of the ritual, kind of my mala and, you know, my mala beads and things like that, and I'd put it down. And then this little section in the middle where I used to carry a very small little Buddha, Buddha statue. And for me, once those things were in place, it kind of didn't really matter. Like the rest of it was kind of incidental. That was the important thing. And that was kind of the key, the heart of the room and the space that I was in. And I think I think even I used to as a ritual, I would even kind of I'd lay that down and then I would just sit before even unpacking or, or anything. And that for me was kind of almost allowing the the mind to catch up with the body or the way around and and arriving home. Like once that was done. I was home, kind of wherever I was. So it's 1999, Moscow, and here's 27-year-old Andy Puttacombe, in the country less than a day, not a word of Russian at his command, standing in an unfamiliar apartment with a bunch of heavily armed Russian cops. And he's in his underwear. And um, and anyway, kind of eventually they, they can't, they looked around the place and they checked my luggage and they were satisfied there were no kind of bombs or anything. And, and so they just kind of made themselves at home and they sat down around the sort of the, the lounge table, dining room table. And I just sat on my bed still, like in, in my underpants, feeling quite exposed in more ways than one. And um, again, I didn't speak any Russian. So it became a kind of game of um, charades, I guess, you know, kind of where... I was trying to explain things. They were trying to explain things. They, they ended up taking my passport away, but we used the passport. And, and they pointed to this little shrine that I'd laid out. And um, one of them said, ah, k- karate, karate. And and again, not this probably wasn't very bright in retrospect, but I was just happy that kind of we, we had a connection, you know. So I was like, oh, yeah, 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 karate, karate. And so these guys were kind of, you know, saying to me kind of like, with their hands gesturing, show us, show us the karate. And I was like, no, 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 no. Anyway, eventually they they kind of relented and they just walked out with my passport and I think I got it back about a a week later. (laughs) Andy's an affable guy, and this is the kind of story you tell years later with an easy laugh. The thing is, though, even at the time, Russia, with all its inconveniences and dislocations, felt right to him. It felt like home. And his Buddhist training was a big part of the reason why. I think what really kind of fascinated me about it was that I, it was the unexpected. You know, meditation is learning to be okay with resting in uncertainty, kind of okay with unpredictability. And living in Russia, I never knew what to expect when I walked out the front door in the morning. Like, I felt like, you know, when you have those stories that you share with your friends in the pub, or whatever, I felt like every single day I saw something or witnessed something or was involved in something, which was just kind of crazy in relation to the, the world in which I'd grown up in. So maybe that's a clue. There was a vividness to Andy's time in Russia and palpable reminders everywhere he looked to be okay with uncertainty, to be at home in it. Good practice for a young guy just setting out on a life's work espousing meditation as a way toward achieving a calm, focused mind. Andy returned to the secular world in 2004, set up as a meditation practitioner in London, met an ex-ad man named Rich Pearson, and the two of them founded Headspace in 2010. The company's tech-based approach to the ancient techniques of meditation caught on quickly, and Headspace grew. Three years later, Andy was on the move again, this time to America. 
Rich came too, and Andy's wife Lucinda, and the company with them. And Andy put down more than professional roots in Los Angeles. His son, Harley, was born here. Right now we're sat in, in Venice Beach, um, which has become a bit of a, a hub for the, the tech community. Uh, so Google and a number of other companies, Snapchat, have moved in here recently. And uh, we're very small in that in that space, but it's uh, it's an amazing place, Venice Beach. It's, I guess, as a as a Brit, Venice Beach really and Santa Monica as well. They really kind of capture that idea of California that we grow up with in in England. He lives near the office, walks to work, surfs when he can, although there's less time for it since Harley came along. Andy had grown up, like a lot of British kids, with an idea of what life in California was like, an idea formed largely via pop culture, TV specifically. Okay, let's be honest, Baywatch. Once here, he set about untangling the legend from the reality. Um, as I say, I, I'd grown up watching, I like anyone, you know, grown up watching those shows that were set in, in Southern California in particular. So I guess that was the impression that I had. and. Honestly, I'm, I'm not sure it's that dissimilar, you know. It, it was a, a life of kind of, of, of perpetual sunshine and blue skies and palm trees and oceans. And, um, and that's, that's my experience of it now, you know. Of course, it's more than that. But it's this idea of outdoor living, which I think when you grow up in the UK can be quite an alien thing. Of, of course, if you're up for kind of donning the waterproofs every weekend and going out kind of hiking and mountain biking and stuff, that's all available there. And the landscape, the countryside's incredible in the UK. But it's really cold and it's really wet. And maybe I'm just, you know, uh, I don't know. Um, I like the warm weather, you know, and, and to be able to be here and just the access to, to everything, to be able to, as I say, to walk to the beach and go surfing, to be able to travel 10 minutes in the car and go hiking or mountain biking. It feels like being, it's like we're immersed in nature here, you know, and I walk out the front door and I, I feel like I'm in nature. I don't feel like I'm, I'm looking at it or I feel like I'm in it. And that's a, it's a really beautiful feeling. So there it was again, something vivid. Something visceral. Nature. The land. The sky. Water. And as he'd found in Russia, an intensity of experience. Some of it was good. Like when his son was born. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's everything I anticipated, and yet there are so many things I think I hadn't expected. I think it's... Uh, it's very difficult to put into words actually um that the experience of of coming home from the hospital with child and there is a sense of coming home i think it it felt stronger than i'd experienced it before like it was it was home not so much for me it was home for our child and it was home for us as a family so i think that feeling of collective was a little stronger so less that this is my home it was like this is our home and and I th it felt very similar to the experience of sitting in a monastery and feeling perhaps that wider collective sense of consciousness this is our home as in everybody everyone every kind of sentient being kind of this is our shared experience 
to on a on a smaller kind of scale like this is our home as a as a family and some of that intensity he found here well it wasn't the kind you'd wish for really we'd only been here kind of yeah six six weeks maybe when when i found out i had i had testicular cancer um and that i think the intensity of that experience i think that that did heighten that sense of being home, it could very easily have gone the other way, you know, kind of, I'm sure for some people it, it might have felt like I'm so far away from home. And I think because I was with my, my wife, she's incredibly supportive and we're, we're a team, you know, kind of, um, sounds cliche, sounds corny, but it's, it's true, you know, and I didn't feel that absence of home. If anything, it, it kind of, I suddenly found myself in a community of people. You know, I suddenly had lots of... Well, we came here not really knowing anyone, and then all of a sudden, I... I don't know, I knew my neighbours because they'd come up to me, they'd seen me kind of be hoisted out of the car kind of, you know, on, on crutches, and, you know, they'd come and said hello and introduce themselves. I... I, there were doctors and nurses kind of in, in my kind of social circle. There were There were friends who had recommended doctors, and um, I felt all of a sudden I'd met all these people... Um, and they had become part of this place we call home. He underwent treatment, by the way, and he's doing fine. He's 43 now, a father, a husband, an entrepreneur. Headspace recently raised a bunch of venture capital and has ambitious plans to become a full-scale wellness platform. And he's a Californian. For now. I have no idea. It's the truth. You know, I, I, I actually feel, I think... Not for the first time, but I feel more okay with not knowing now than in any other place. I love it here. I think I'd miss it if I moved, but equally, kind of okay if we move as well. Maybe that's as good a definition of home as any. It's a place where we're more okay with change, with uncertainty, with just not knowing, than we are anywhere else. A place to rest. Unless home isn't a place at all. For all Andy's traveling, for all the pushpins that he could stick in a map, physical locations, streets and buildings, mountains and rivers, he's still a Buddhist after all. Before I go, I ask him what, if anything, he knows about place that the young man who took off at 22 for a decade of self-discovery didn't know. This idea of um, home being... Not necessarily a quality of mind, because a quality of mind suggests maybe it could be fleeting. I take it a step further than that, and I'd say like the the essence of mind. So we spend a lot of time kind of caught up in our thoughts, the busyness of the mind, and I think very often we're kind of we're searching for a place in our mind, stillness, peace, quietness, clarity, perception, whatever you want to kind of call it. You know, we're always searching for this place and yet the more we kind of search the more noise we create and the further away we move from it and my own experience has been when I have not only stilled the body for long enough but when I stilled the mind for long enough when these thoughts subside there is an ever present place we can call it home we can call it there's all kinds of words for it in the world you know but there is this place where we are no longer disconnected from the world around us we feel a sense of yeah, connectivity, of oneness, of, of being present, not as an individual in the world, but as something kind of bigger than that. And, and for me, that's the home that, 
travels with us wherever we go in the world. It, it goes beyond kind of us as individuals and even our relationships with others, you know. It transcends all those things. There is this ever-present, again, sort of stillness or, or clarity that I would describe as home. <laughs>